And it's entitled tonight, The Lord Looks on the Heart. The Lord Looks on the Heart. Solomon here in, chapter, in Proverbs 21 continues with Proverbs, writing about what's proper for a king as he talked about the different phases of life and especially from the viewpoint of a king. King Solomon has talked about the favor and the anger and the fear of a king. And now he's going to tell us about the duties of a king, the intentions of a king, his relations, and his interests. Uh, we'll be covering that, not all tonight in this chapter, but he's going to as we go along. Beginning in verse 1, Proverbs 21, Solomon says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Solomon is telling us here that God can change hearts and he can change plans to accomplish his purposes. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, Daniel tried to tell King Belshazzar this fact. And he said to King Belshazzar, You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. And then we read in Daniel 5.27 where the, uh, the handwriting appeared on the wall. And it said to Belshazzar, You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that same night, the king of the Chaldeans, Belshazzar, was slain. All of man's plans, whether they're princes or paupers, are in the hands of God. And he can change them whenever he wants, in any way he wants, to fulfill his perfect will. The Lord directed the heart of Pharaoh. He directed the heart of Cyrus and King Artaxerxes, because God is sovereign. In Daniel 4.35, it says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's God. He's in control. He has the last word. He has the last say. Verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Here it is. God looks upon the heart of man. God is involved in the affairs of men. And God's involvement in man's heart is not limited to just kings. And this verse is pretty much the same as Proverbs 16:2 that says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. A person may think that there's nothing wrong with their ways, that is, with their behavior. But the Lord knows what's going on in his heart or her heart. Now, God isn't looking at what you're doing as much as why you're doing it. What is your motive for doing it? As it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's when God was looking for a king. And everybody was bringing all these big, strong men and you know, showing them to the Lord and says, Lord, how about this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? And you know, then he called for King David. And, and he said, this is the one. You guys are all looking at his stature, his size, his looks, and everything that, you know, that, that man would look for in a leader. And God said, man looks at the outward appearance, but he says, I'm looking at the heart. Because character is in the heart. 
And the Lord weighs things out perfectly. He weighs out and knows the, the, the person's motives and he tests them. And God is sovereign and he's also omniscient. So he can see things that we can't see. He knows things that we don't know. So Solomon here is showing us what God thinks about our ways. And as God is working out, or at working, uh, as he's at work at carrying out his will, he's not fooled by any man. He's not fooled by their looks. He's not fooled by their stature. You know, he's not fooled by their education or lack of it. And his plans, God's plans, are not hindered either. Because God is too wise to be fooled by anything that man tries to do. Verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Solomon here tells us what's acceptable to God. God would rather have our obedience, which means doing what's right and fair, rather than have their sacrifice. Now, Israel's sacrifices were not a substitute for the sacrifice of righteous living. The Lord hated the hypocrisy of a wicked person who would bring an animal to him to be sacrificed while they are thinking that, you know what, this is going to make everything okay with me and God. You know, I'm going to bring this beautiful sacrifice. I'm going to give this to God, and that's going to square things up with me and him. I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Samuel said this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Hey, it's a lot easier to bring a lamb to be burnt on the altar than to bring every thought and every deed into the obedience to God. And, in, and the will subject to God's will. You know, God prefers obedience rather than sacrifice. Verse 4. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Solomon here talks about the wicked many times. <clears throat> and he talks about it, you know, in this chapter. All right? He talks about uh, arrogance. He talks about pride. And he talks about hypocrisy here in verse 3. You know, this this is what the wicked thrive on. But pride is sin. The word haughty look in the King James Version is a high look. All right? You know, for example, maybe a person walked into church on on a Sunday morning and they saw somebody in the church that maybe they have a grudge against or their their relationship is is not what it should be and, and and they turn their head you know, or avoided them so that they wouldn't have to speak to them or acknowledge them. And then they see that the other person didn't see them. And they said, oh, good, you know what? He says, I didn't see that, and you know, they didn't see me. But you know what? God saw it. God sees that kind of stuff. And to God, it's sin. And where it says in verse 4, the plowing of the wicked is sin, you might see a man out plowing his field, and you think, what a hardworking guy. He should be rewarded for being such a hard worker. But God says that when an evil man with an evil heart, when he sees him, he says, whatever he's doing, 
even plowing, even doing something good, it won't be acceptable in his sight. And that means a sinner can't give anything to God. He can't perform a good work. Not only is the haughty look and proud heart sinful, but what, other, you know, what otherwise would be commendable is sin in a man who's in rebellion against God. And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 18, Scripture tells us that God won't bless a gift from an unsaved person. Listen to what it says. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog, which was a male prostitute, to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. What Solomon is saying here is that the hardworking person thinks things through. They make plans. They carry them out in an orderly way. They're dedicated to their business, and as a result, prosperity will usually follow. But on the other hand, he says some people are poor because of poor planning. And they're impulsive. They're, hasty person. they're a hasty person. They act on impulse. They often work without thinking, and then they wonder why what they do never seems to work out. And one of the biggest roadblocks to prosperity, or I should say to success in life, is the mismanagement of time. And too often we spend most of our time on the unimportant things. Verse 6. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. Verses 6, 7, and 8 refer to the wicked. And Solomon in particular is referring to their lying to their violence, and to their deceitful behaviors. Getting wealth or getting a fortune dishonestly, that is by lying, Solomon says it won't last, and it will disappear quickly like a vapor of smoke. And the thought here is either that money gained dishonestly will trap a person rather than bless them, and eventually bringing him to his death, or that seeking money dishonestly is like seeking or pursuing death. Verse 7. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. People who are violent with other people will come to find out that it will come back around to them, just like evil talk does. And eventually, they will be dragged away themselves like fish caught in a net. Wicked people will be punished because even though they know what's right, they won't do it. Verse 8. The way of a guilty man is perverse. But as for the pure, his work is right. Perverse and right here describe the behavior of the guilty and the behavior of the innocent individually. This verse compares the crookedness of guilty people with the uprightness of godly people. You see, your life, the way you live, the way you behave yourself will show what kind of a person you really are. And if you're right with God, it will be seen in your life. It will see, be seen in the way that you live. Verse 9. Solomon says, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, in Bible times, the houses had flat roofs. And even today, if you go to Israel, you will see flat roofs. Because they were very convenient to be used for many things. They were used for many purposes. You know, they could, they, would, they could sleep on them. They'd go out there and have conversations. Uh, they would go out there to, and exercise on them. They'd be used for domestic matters. Uh, they'd be used for relaxation and prayer. 
The point that Solomon is making in verse 9 and 19 is he's saying it's choosing to live in a small space on a corner of a flat roof or in a desolate area, meaning wilderness, desert, where a person can at least have peace and quiet rather than in a big house with an argumentative wife in this particular case. And again, it can be either way. It can be the husband or the wife. But again, Solomon here is using again the example because again, remember, he had a harem of a thousand wives and so I'm sure that he had those experiences that, you know, he would get into these tiffs with, the, with one of his wives and whatever it might be. And, and again, he's speaking uh, from experience on that. He's saying, a wife who causes strife makes a home unpleasant and undesirable. Verse 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. The wicked person loves to do evil. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's like something they, they prefer to do. It's like they're almost addicted to doing evil. He's mean even to his neighbor, and he's mean to those who are close to him. Verse 11. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. Proverbs 19.25 is almost identical to Proverbs 22.10. The public punishment of a scoffer may cause the simple, speaking of the naive or the open-minded, to become wise. But when the wise is instructed, he becomes wiser. Why? Because he's teachable. Verse 12. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Now, in the King James Version, it says the righteous man. All right, the righteous man. Here it says the righteous God. But here, the righteous man, it, he thinks about the fortunes and seeming prosperity of the wicked and looking to the end of these men, that is looking where they end up, he sees how meaningless their success is and what a disaster is waiting for them when their life is over. Now, in the New King James here, it says the righteous God, all right? The righteous God knows what's going on in the homes of the wicked, and he can overthrow them, and he can bring them to ruin, or he can bring them to calamity. Verse 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A person who cold-heartedly ignores the needs of the poor Solomon says they are wicked and, 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 and ignored when that person is in need. And one day that, they might be ignored when they're in need because of what they did to those that they you know, cold-heartedly ignored themselves. Verse 14, a gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back, strong wrath. Now here, remember when Jacob was returning home after his years in Haran, he ran away from his brother because his brother found out he deceived him and, and wanted to kill him. Um, he knew that one day he would have to face his brother Esau. And so he, he, here he is, when he returned from Haran after years of hiding out, this was the first time he'd seen him since he had tricked him out of or deceived him out of his birthright and his blessing. So remember what he did? Before he got there to see Esau, before he met his brother, he's had somebody send gifts to Esau before he got there to kind of soften him up. But he really didn't need to do that because God had already taken care of Esau's attitude. 
But men have found out, they have learned that a gift in secret will pacify anger. You know, it will calm them down. It will, you know, it, it will soften them up a little bit. And we can easily fall into this kind of thinking. That, you know, hey, I'm going to be generous because, you know, then I'll be rewarded. Or I'm going to forgive somebody because if I do, it'll make me feel better. Now, giving somebody a gift, it may help calm their anger. Because the receiver feels that the gift is a sign of love, or at least it's a sign that they care. Even a secret bribe will do, you know, will work less, you know, to, to, uh, will work to, to lessen anger. But in Solomon saying this, don't take this in the wrong, this, this isn't saying that bribery, okay, Solomon is not advocating bribery. Solomon here is stating just a simple fact. This is not what Jesus intended. You see, we are to forgive because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And that's why we're to be kind. That's why we're to be tenderhearted and we're to be forgiving to one another. You see, our motive for giving is not to make us feel better. It's to do the right thing. Verse 15. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Verses 15 and 16 refer Punishing to evil here. These verses refer uh, to punishing evil. Only the righteous can welcome justice because evildoers are its victims. The word destruction here means dismay, ruin, or undoing. And it's used more in Proverbs than any other book in the Bible. Verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. And a, a man who wanders, the word wanders means to vacillate. It means to waver. And then a man who wanders or, or wavers from the way, which is a road, a path that God puts you on, of understanding, which is circumspect, all right? A man who wanders from the way, all right, of understanding will rest, that is, stay in the assembly or the company of the dead. Here is a spiritual history suggested by Solomon. The, Solomon, the, the person that Solomon talks about here is a person who at one time, they had a chance to follow the way of understanding. At one time, they knew the truth. At one time, God spoke to their heart. You know, the man who has tasted the good things of God, who was once enlightened, and then wanders from that truth, who wanders out of that way of understanding, you know, that he once walked in, Solomon says, they shall remain or have a permanent residence in the congregation of the dead, speaking of the lost. Maybe this individual who was enlightened, who once walked in the right way, in the way of understanding, maybe he was raised in a godly home. Maybe he was taken to Sunday school and taught the word of God. Maybe they knew scripture and was taught the way of salvation. Or maybe God spoke to him some other way or in other ways. But then he had to make a choice. It always comes down to a choice. God never speaks to us just so that we can say, oh, that was interesting. I enjoyed hearing that. It's kind of like what we heard this morning. You know, when it came down to making a choice, when Paul was speaking to the, the Jews and the brethren in the synagogue. You know, he gave them the gospel message. And, and, he, and, it, and, you know, he said that, hey, it's time. You know, he said, God, you know, at one time he said, God once overlooked our ignorance, but he commends men now to repent because now we have the light of the gospel and we know the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation message. 
So again, it's not to say, you know, go walk away when we hear the God. Oh, that was interesting. That was, you know, I never heard that before. Uh -uh. God requires a response. We are to choose. As we read in Joshua 24, 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites. Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you, notice, life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. You see, when we choose Christ, we're choosing life. When we reject Christ, we're choosing death. And the most important is where we spend eternity. In choosing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we will spend eternity in heaven. But in rejecting Jesus Christ and His love and His salvation, we will spend eternity in hell unless we repent and are saved. Nobody can get away with just giving their opinion about God's truth. Once it's made known to them, they are to make a choice. And remember what Jesus said? He says, you're either with me or against me. You either gather with me or scatter abroad. There's no neutral ground. There's no place where I can stand and not have to make a choice. It is I either accept him or reject him. Again, he didn't leave us room for that that option of, of, of staying neutral. And so nobody can get away with just giving their opinion to God's truth, again, once it's been made known to them. God's word always brings a person to the point of responding. It's either yes or no. And Solomon's saying, the man who wanders from the way failed to take God's call seriously. When they heard the gospel, when they heard the way of God, they refused it. They didn't take it seriously and just gave up or just gave lip service to God while they were developing and cultivating the pleasures and the promises of the world, this life. An unwise person leaves the company of the wise, Solomon says, only to find themselves in the company of dead people. They're walking dead. Apart from Christ, they're walking dead. And the end of willful wandering is eternal death. Verse 17. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Some people are poor because they follow sinful pleasures. They love pleasure more than they love God. And, and you know, in Timothy, it says that's, that's going to be some of the signs of the, of the, la- the last days. You know, that it says men will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Lovers of money, lovers of self. You know, and, and in this particular verse here, Solomon says, you know, following sinful pleasures, loving pleasure, um, it's going to result in poverty. And the word poor here in verse 17 means deficient, destitute, or in need. And it's used in Proverbs more often than in any other Old Testament book. Now, Solomon isn't saying that you have to live a dull, serious life and that you can't have any fun. But he's against living only for pleasure and only for self. If a person continues to use up his wine and oil, he won't become rich. Verse 18. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Justice or fairness demands the punishment of the guilty so that the innocent might be delivered. By the grace of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, became a ransom for the wicked. He's the upright, and you and I are the transgressors. Verse 19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Verse 19, the word wilderness here 
uh, means desert. So again, he's saying better to dwell in the desert than with a contentious and angry woman. Verse 20. There is, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling place of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. Solomon says here, a wise person stores up food like an ant getting ready for winter. But a foolish person doesn't think about it. The foolish person only, only cares for the pleasures of the moment. And he doesn't save and he doesn't prepare for the future. He eats all of his food so now he has nothing to eat between harvests. Verse 21. He who follows righteousness and mercy, they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Oops, wrong place. That was verse 22. Okay, verse uh, 21. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds, yeah, finds life, righteousness, and honor. This man, Solomon says, finds a lot more than he bargains for because he invests in principle. He seeks after righteousness, and in turn, he finds righteousness, he finds honor, and he finds life. That's why it's not surprising that when we, when we pursue you know, acts of righteousness or pursuits of righteousness, they bring such great rewards to us. To seek after righteousness means we seek after what's right in God's eyes, not what's right in our own eyes, not what's right in man's eyes. And the man who seeks mercy, man, he's, he, he's investing in love because love is the root idea behind the word mercy here. He invests in grace and he invests in loving kindness. So in a nutshell, the man who invests in law and love and follows after those things that are dear to the heart of God, they find life, real life. Seeking God's kingdom means losing ourselves in obedience to the Lord to the point that we can say like Paul, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. To seek first, the kingdom of God is to pour out our lives in the work of our Heavenly Father. To do the work that He's called us to do. That eternal work. To seek God's kingdom first is to seek to win people into the kingdom. That is what we're called to do. He saved us to bring the gospel message to those around us. Those who are living in this dark and lost world. That they might be saved and that God might be glorified. You see, it's to have our Heavenly Father's own truth and His love and His righteousness to be seen in our lives. To have that peace that the Bible speaks about. To have that peace that we're looking for and that joy in the Spirit. We also seek God's kingdom first when we long for the return of Jesus Christ when He comes in His millennial kingdom. And He comes to establish His kingdom on earth and bring in His eternal kingdom. And we're also to seek His righteousness. His righteousness, because that's the only righteousness that can, that can, again, get us into the presence of God. Instead of seeking the things of the world, the, 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 the trinkets that this world has to offer us, we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're to hunger and thirst for the things of the world to come, which are characterized above all else by God's perfect righteousness and holiness. It's more than wanting something heavenly and future. It's also longing for something that's present 
and it's practical. It's for every day. We're not only to have heavenly expectations, but also heavenly lives. And because all these things, that is the earth and its works, are going to be destroyed one day, and in, the, in this way Peter says in 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You know, knowing that, that one, of the, one of these days, the earth and everything that's going to be in it is going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. We know that. Peter said, what kind of people should we be? in holy conduct and in godliness and looking for and hastening that coming day of God. Because we know what's going to happen. We know what the Bible says. We should be people living holy lives, godly lives. And, and again, Lord, praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring in that day. Verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. A wise person is able to conquer the mighty, Solomon says. A person whose strength is his wise, godly character, that's pictured here as conquering another person who trusts in physical strengths. Wisdom gives strength. It gives us safety as well as the blessings that are mentioned in verse 21. Look at verse 23 now. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Boy, this is a great truth here. James has a whole chapter on itself. Chapter 3 of the book of James. That, that, that speaks about the tongue. James gives the best counsel when it comes to the tongue. But it seems like a lot of people, including Christians, don't pay much attention to it. James called the tongue a, a, a tongue of fire. He called it a world of iniquity. He says by, a, a, by a, a small bit in the horse's mouth, a man can control an animal a lot bigger than he is. He says with a small rudder, he can steer a huge ship, even in a stormy sea. He says men can tame birds, they can tame you know, whales and elephants and all kinds of other animals, but no one can totally tame their own tongue. He said, one minute, we're, we're singing praises to God. The next moment, we curse our fellow man that's created in God's image. The tongue doesn't obey any rules. Solomon says, being careful and being wise in what you say is a way of keeping out of trouble. Verse 24. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Three words for pride describe the mocker. It says here, proud, haughty, and pride. The word scoffer or mocker shows that a person thinks he's better than others. This attitude is offensive to God and to other people. Verse 25 through 26. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. Both of these persons speak about, I'm sorry, both of these verses, uh, 25 and 26, speak about a lazy person. He wants things, but he eventually starves because he won't work. He wants things, but he doesn't do anything to get them. In, in contrast to the lazy who wants things but doesn't have them, 
Solomon says the righteous have them and they give willingly and they give generously. Verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when, when he brings it with wicked intent? All we have to do is read how the Lord condemned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 to see how sinful hypocrisy is and how much he hates it. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 6 verses 18 through 20 when God spoke about the people's uh, sacrifices. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And it reads like this. Therefore, listen to this, all you nations. Take note of my people's situation. Listen, all the earth. God says, I will bring disaster on my people. It is the fruit of their own uh, uh, schemes because they refuse to listen to me. They have rejected my word. There, notice what he says now. There's no use offering me free, sweet frankincense from Sheba. He says, keep your fragrant calamus imported from distant lands. I will not accept your burnt offerings. Your sacrifices have no pleasing aroma for me. God does not care or accept or want sacrifices from those who are, who are hypocrites, who are sinful. And there's no worse kind of hypocrisy than, than to go through the motions of, of loving God, to go through the motions of religion with the deliberate purpose of pretending to be righteous, pretending to live godly while living unrighteously. And again, God sees that. God sees through our hearts. The sacrifice of the sinner is offensive to God. But when it's offered under the guise of religion, without repentance and faith, man, it's even more offensive to him. And when that person brings their offering to win God's support in their sin, he commits and has no intention of forsaking his sin then brings it as, you know, he brings that offering as kind of a bribe to God, as I mentioned earlier, and a payment to overlook his sin. And this is why this behavior is called an abomination to God. The idea of, of appeasing God by sharing with him the profits of sin, it's like, you know, it's like stealing $1,000 and then putting $100 in the offering plate. Here, Lord, this is for you thinking it's going to make things better between God and me. Man, he, he, he just, he can't, that's an abomination to him. Verse 28. A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. Solomon says a false witness will be cut off. He'll be stopped, but a credible witness will be allowed to speak over and over again. Proverbs speaks against lying, perjury, Lying under oath, giving false witness in court. And both the false witness and the judge or others who follow this way will be destroyed. God punishes dishonesty. Verse 29. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. A man's face. Hey, you can tell a lot about a man by his face. It tells us about his character. It tells about his character and life story. And in his arrogance and hypocrisy, a wicked person puts on a, 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 you know, a, 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 a strong face, a bold face, and he tries to persuade people to believe him, often by his lies and his dishonesty. But on the other hand, a righteous man, a righteous person, 
reflects on his conduct. And he wants to be honest. He pursues being honest. He's not hypocritical. And he's consistent in everything that he or she does. They want to be sure. Literally, they want to make sure that he establishes all of their actions and that they're right and they're compared to the stubborn overconfidence of a wicked person who doesn't take the precautions that are necessary to see that his life is right. And Solomon said, God turns his, away, his face away from the wicked man to look at the upright man. And Solomon says, the Lord directs the upright man. This proverb gives us a picture of a humble believer turning an eager, searching face to the Lord. And this man is rewarded, Solomon says, learning that the Lord's face is turned toward him and to point out the good in the right way through life. Verse 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Nobody, whether it's a man, woman, men, or nation, or nations, who, int who, who, who intend to defy the Lord, they can never do it. They can never win. The city of Tyre, which we're going to look at next Wednesday in Isaiah, the city of Tyre, which worshipped many gods, was destroyed by the Lord. And he said it will never be rebuilt. And to this day, the city of Tyre is just a place where the fishermen hang their, uh, uh, place their nets to dry. You see, it doesn't matter how clever the advisors of nations' rulers are, if they're against God and they set themselves against God and they insult Him by their lifestyle, in time, God's going to avenge Himself on that nation and its people. Verse 31, as we close. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. A nation's best line of defense is a living trust in God. Not so much the power of their army, the number of the army, the, the, the advanced weapons that they might have. History teaches us this truth. David learned this. And David wrote this in Psalm 27.3. He said, Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. In his God. And again, that an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war rise against me, he said, in this I will be confident. He also learned this truth. Uh, Asa also learned this truth. And he cried out to the Lord his God. And he said this in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. How wonderful it is to trust in God and to trust only in Him. Again, notice verse 30. It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle. Now, the horse was a symbol or is a symbol of military power. And to the earlier Jews who aren't used to them, who weren't used to them and were forbidden to use them, the horse and the horse-drawn chariots were objects of extreme terror to the earlier Jews. And though Solomon had mostly exported them or imported them from Egypt, these animals were used only for war. And at this time uh, in their service, they were never used uh, for farming purposes. 
The proverb says that even though all preparations are made for battle, that says everything, everything that you do in preparing for battle, you know, the, the, the army, the, the way they're, they're, they're weaponized, their material forces, at best and at strongest description, still safety or protection is of the Lord. It's His deliverance that we depend upon. It's His victory that we look to. So this great truth <clears throat> that's taught here <clears throat> can also be, again, applied to spiritual matters in our life. You know, we can be smart, we can be clever, we can be strong, we can be all that we can be. But it's all, our, our spiritual safety against our enemies is the grace of God, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. We can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our victory. That's where it comes from. Now, that doesn't mean we're not to be prepared. You know, we need to read. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 11, 21, a strong man armed keeps his palace and his goods are in peace. But safety is from Jehovah God. So be armed, be ready, but be sure your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you're resting in Him. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word, God. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, it, it, God, it gives us such wise counsel. And Father, when we take Your Word serious and again we apply it, we don't look at it and go, oh, that was neat to hear or, or give our opinion of it. Uh, it. It's not for information. It's for transformation. To bring us along and to make us more like Christ in our life every day. So, Father, bless your people. Be with them as they go their ways, Lord, and watch over them through the week, God. Uh, protect us. Protect us from all harm and evil, God, and, and disease and and Lord, we, we look forward to meeting with you again, Father. So have your way, God. Be glorified in this place by your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.